Welcome to the Middle Church Podcast, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, intergenerational movement of spirit and justice, powered by revolutionary love with room for everyone. No matter where you are, how you look, or who you love, we pray this podcast will help you on your journey. Here's this week's sermon. I come today to reflect with you on a passage of Scripture here found um, that we've been wrestling with with faith communities across the country at the Children's Defense Fund, uh, particularly those in Jewish and Christian traditions uh, who serve and share this text together. Uh, Those of us in Christian traditions who borrowed it, uh, stole, uh, from our big brothers and sisters in radical monotheism, and a little child shall lead them. I, Dr. Jackie, recall as I went back and forth across the country in what our grant called focus groups, but felt a lot like Bible study to me. Uh, My time is 10 years as the pastor of St. John's Church, the beloved community in St. Louis. My favorite thing to do was to teach and lead in adult study. Uh, As I got to do that, I got to wrestle with texts and challenge people's intentions, and we wrestle with this text with faith communities across the country. Um, But I am also reminded of an occupational hazard of being a pastor in my community. The occupational hazard of being a pastor in my community is people believe that I have some clear insight about what God wants. And every now and then they bring all manner of situations that I have not experienced in my own life with a question about what God would have them to do. What does God want? I figured after a while, it was about year three, I better have some kind of answer or framework for this. Um, So I began to work out in a read of the scriptures what I think God wants. It is my way of understanding the Bible from the front cover to the back. It is a series and succession of initiatives where God is pursuing and God is up to something. I decided that God desires a community of peace with humanity in relationship and holiness in the realm. God desires a community of peace with humanity in relationship and holiness in the realm. I figured this was a helpful framework, but uh, I grew up in a Baptist church and tradition, so I better be able to find it in the Bible. And so I started reading this thing in the interest of validation of what I heard in my prayer life. And I see in creation, there in the very beginning, where God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And then the project goes forth, and God reaches down into Adamai, into clay, and shapes humanity, placing them in relationship with one another. And there we have it, a picture of a community of peace with humanity in relationship and holiness in the realm. But we messed that up. Uh, But God is not to be outdone by our disobedience. And so in God's steadfast love, God continues to pursue. And when creation breaks down, there in the 12th chapter of Genesis, covenant takes over. 
uh, God enters into relationship with Abraham and all those who would be offspring of Abraham, suggesting um, that I will make your seed uh, uh, great. I will make you um, of you a great nation and you'll be my people and I'll be your God. And when creation breaks down, covenant takes over. And in relationship with the people who come forth from Abraham, God creates a community of peace with humanity in relationship and holiness in the realm. But you all who study this story know that it gets a little rocky. Uh, these same folks get called stiff-necked a little later, uh, and they begin to break the relationship because that's kind of what humanity does. Uh, humanity messes up and Hesed, God's steadfast love, kicks in. And so there in Isaiah, I'm just reading through the Bible again. In Isaiah, in the first chapter, about the 18th verse, uh, God tries again and says, come now, let us reason together. Uh, the language in the, uh, the, the true language is actually, let's argue it out. So when creation doesn't work and covenant breaks down, God desires and enters into conversation through the prophets with God's people in order to bring forth again a community of peace with humanity in relationship and holiness in the realm. But those who read the Bible really closely know that there is like a blank page between the Old and the New Testament. 400 years of silence. The conversation breaks down. And so God maybe figures I better do this thing myself. And in Matthew chapter one, the gospels open up with God coming down God's self. And through, as the scriptures say in my tradition, I think that's the 17th verse of Matthew, 40, 40 in two generations, the Christ takes over where conversation breaks down. And as Christ walks among us upon the earth, we experience a community of peace with humanity in relationship and holiness in the realm. Jesus did some dangerous things got him killed by the state, calling forth a kind of community that was alternative and challenged to the kind of penury and oppression that the state decided, decided to bring. And after being cut down, God doesn't give up God's divine initiative. And when Christ transitions, the spirit falls in Acts chapter two in Pentecost and upon all human flesh. And with the spirit among and within us, God creates again a community of peace with humanity in relationship and holiness in the realm. This is what God wants. I see it throughout the scripture in my literary and sometimes too linear read, uh, but it helps me when I run into situations in life where I can kind of read the newspaper through this Bible and wonder, is this what God wants? And when I read of a nation that has a population level experiment with expanding the child tax credit and lifting almost half of all children out of poverty in America, but can't pull together the moral courage to keep that thing in 2022 the way you had it in 2021. So poverty among children increases from 5% to over 12%. I can say definitively that is not what God wants. When I consider that people who are called to beat swords into plowshares are actually allowing guns to be the number one killer of children in America, I can say definitively that is not what God wants. 
Uh, when I consider the crisis of migrants, not just in this state and not just the arguments that are going forth from the mayor and the governor of this, this city and the, uh, the activity that is not active enough from the president of the United States, but I consider the 10,000 young people, unaccompanied children in the care of health and human services of the United States of America and those who have been put with sponsors who are not family members and those, those 344 who have been placed with people who have exploited them in their lives for labor. I can say this is not what God wants. And you don't have to go far on your clicker to get a sense of what is going on in Northeast Africa and the Middle East. And you may not have a sense that half the population in Gaza is under the age of 18. But when I consider the war and not just now the rumors of war and the tragedies and traumas they create for all children in the region, I can say definitively that this is not what God wants. God desires a community of peace with humanity in relationship and holiness in the realm. The question for us is how do we get from this that God wants to this that is our world? And I want to argue that as I read, maybe sometimes too quickly this text, I, I sometimes want to pause and take a picture of one. And in this passage in Isaiah chapter 11, we get an opportunity to tune in to what God may want and how we can make it from this to that. It requires us in this 11th chapter to take a different lens on leadership. In this passage um, that we see in verses one through five, the story is told and a picture is painted. We see the hope and promise of a leader who will come. A leader who won't judge like everybody else. A, a leader who doesn't trust their own eyes and their own perspective. One whose administration will be marked by justice and righteousness. A leader who will care for and tend to God's people and their needs. The first through the fifth verses uh, help us to understand and appreciate the human longing for someone who will set things aright. And then verses six through nine paint the picture, uh, a cosmic, maybe comic even, a picture of a child engaging in a community that seems so peaceable that it does not seem to make sense. It seems cartoon-esque even. A leopard and a lamb laying down together. To the leopard, the lamb is lunch. <laughs> These carnivorous animals in this picture are actually eating grass together. This child in a dangerous circumstance is playing with snakes and not being harmed. And we do this thing with this text. We, we take the promise of the leader in the first through the fifth verses and the, uh, the, the, the progression of that leadership, this peaceful kingdom in the sixth and ninth verses, and we do these things we do with the Bible a lot. We separate it. Canonization is this process where we add numbers where there were no numbers. We add spaces where there were no spaces. Uh, and then in your good study Bibles, we add pauses where there were no pauses. And I want to argue for a minute um, with those who have, these, I'm sorry, with the grown-ups who have placed a pause between the promise of a leader who doesn't lead like everybody else and the picture of a toddler who gets things done that nobody else can get done and suggest wrestling with the Christians in the room that maybe this isn't Jesus. 
Maybe this is just a promised, promising progeny of our community. Maybe we get to peace when we listen to the children. Maybe this is to turn us to a different lens on leadership. I want to offer that a fresh lens on leadership as we wrestle with this text uh, may cause us to think of it in at least three different ways. First, uh, we may consider leadership as a divine condescension. Uh, John Goldengay, Old Testament scholar, uh, talks about the ways we have come to define leadership. You know, special group of people, specialized knowledge, separate from everybody else, a little bit elitist. He suggests this is not what's going on in the Old Testament most faithfully. What's most faithfully happening is servanthood. Those who stand within a community and model what it means to be faithful to a relationship with God among the community. Perhaps uh, we recognize here that verses one through five are an expression of a hope for a leader uh, and a certain type of leader. Uh, it is going again with what Golden Gate lays out is that over time what happens is God says, I want direct relationship with the community. Meet me on the mountain, whether it's the holy mountain that is referenced here at the end of the text, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, or whether it is uh, a, a conversation where we name and frame as Mount Sinai, God wants direct relationship with God's community. And the people keep saying, but give us a king like the other people. And so God does relent, kind of like, you know, you got children. And sometimes they want a thing and they want a thing and it feels like this. Mom, dad, can't. I give you what you want. But God gives us what we want and then qualifies in this text. We see qualifies and distinguishes the servant from other types of leaders. The servant has political insight. The servant in the face of war uses diplomacy. The servant has a certain personal piety. Leadership as a divine condescension may help us to understand human desires and may call us to consider things in a different way. But also we may think of leadership as a collective responsibility. Our dear friend Ramesh Raghavan, who's here in the New York area at New York University, is helping the Children's Defense Fund to frame our thinking around child well-being. Uh, there, he's at the School of Social Work, and his work seeks to frame children's, uh, child well-being in a couple of ways. It says, first, uh, children are well, children are thriving when they can enjoy childhood as a stage in and of itself. Consider that. Children are more than little adults. Childhood is a stage to be explored and enjoyed in and of itself. They are also well when they are developing as those their age and stage should. There are, of course, certain developmental milestones that each young person should have, and as they meet those, we can say that they are well. He also doesn't negate this idea of becoming. Yes, uh, they should be progressing toward productive and fruitful lives as adults, but it's the last part that gets me. He also notes that it is the responsibility of the community to create the conditions for young people to thrive. Here he suggests that the leadership call is one for all in a community and in a space, in a neighborhood, in a congregation, a synagogue or a mosque, a temple, in order to make sure that young people have what they need to thrive. Verses six through nine in the text paint a picture of what is possible when everyone in the community accepts their charge to create the conditions required for young people to thrive. But there's this thing that happens. 
Even when we consider leadership as a collective responsibility and we consider leadership as a divine condescension, when we say leadership, we then look around the room and look for the grown folks. And so I want to not negate what's happening in the text. Leadership can also be a project and promise of progeny. Verses six through nine uh, help to interrogate what we do when we hear what Ramesh is talking about. We look around and see all the grown folks and decide what is our responsibility to care for these children. We believe in the three-legged stool of the global children's rights movement of provision and protection. Yes, we have to make sure young people have all the things that they need. We have to make sure that harm does not come to them. But there's a third P in the progression, it's participation. That no decision should be made about them without them. And so here, verses six through nine give evidence that young people bring unique abilities and potential to the collective imagination and open up unforeseen possibilities that when you just get 18 and plus year olds in a room, nobody can see. Maybe we can't see it because it's been talked out of us. Maybe we can't see it because it's been structured out of us. A little too much wrapping on the knuckles with the ruler, a little too much be seen and not heard, a little too much sit back and be quiet, and not enough creation of space. I see this child this, in this open field, this pastoral image as one who just for a moment on children's Sabbath is seen and safe insecure. And, and what I learned through the mentorship of one eight-year-old baby girl uh, who was just here around this Bema turned altar uh, is that there's another definition of child well-being. It's not just one from social work books and it's not just one that comes in abstracts, uh, but when children are seen and safe and find sanctuary and are secure, they sing and dance like nobody's watching. <laughs> This is the picture of a beloved community. This is a charge for each and every one of us. This is what the text is trying to teach and tell us, that young people can lead us to a place that we have not yet seen before, if we're willing to listen and follow their lead. I'm not sure about these other situations, but when I see my daughter singing and dancing, and when I hear young people singing like these today, and when I know they are safe and secure, I don't have all the answers to what's going on in the mind of God, but I do know this is what God wants. Thanks for listening, friends. To learn more about Middle Church, visit middlechurch.org. You can help grow this movement of love and justice by rating us on Apple or Spotify and by sharing this episode with a friend or two. Send us an email at info at middlechurch.org if you have any questions or comments. We hope you'll come back next week. Bye for now.